Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, recording from my office here in Mountain Home, Tennessee, uh, at the College of Pharmacy, uh, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, which is the supporter of this podcast. Uh, we've got a lot of updates to get to from the last couple weeks, so let's just let's just get right to it. Uh, October 30th, two days ago, uh, I'm recording this on November 1st. Uh, Pembrolizumab was FDA approved as an update approval for the first line treatment of metastatic squamous non-small cell lung cancer uh, in conjunction with carboplatin and paclitaxel or NAB paclitaxel. And we discussed um, this study. This is based off of Keynote 407 uh, some weeks back. This was published in September in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it showed um, an improvement or a difference in in median overall survival of 15.9 months with the immunotherapy group compared to 11.3 months with uh, carbopaclitaxel. Uh, So now we're at a place uh, in non-small cell lung cancer where I once again this year will have to modify my lung cancer uh, metastatic uh, treatment of non-small cell lung cancer slides in the algorithm because it's changed every single year uh, that I've taught. Uh, so if you take out those that have an activating mutation of EGFR or ALK, ROS1, or uh, BRAF V600E, you're left with those that have a high PD-L1 expression, more than 50%, potentially single-agent Pembro. Um, you've got, uh, and that would be ADNO. Then you've got your non-squamous patients. You could do Pembrolizumab plus Platinum plus Pemetrexid, uh, Carbopem Pembro. CPP, CP2, CP squared, something like that. There's got to be a better name for that regimen. And now for our squamous histology, we have Pembro plus carbopaclitaxel. And in that study, um, it was about two to one the number of patients who received paclitaxel as opposed to NAB paclitaxel. Uh, we talked about a laparib. We talked about PARP inhibitors a lot last week, uh, but there was, um, you know, right after I recorded last week's podcast, there was um, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine for the week was released, and there was an elaborate study that I thought warranted some mention. Um, And it's not every day that a phase one study is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but that's what happened with elaborate back in uh, July of 2009. Um, And I I was, uh, I had just finished uh, residency at that time. And um, so maybe that's why this sticks, you know, in in my memory is a phase one study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, You know, there weren't you know, it was a phase one study, not very many patients. You're just trying to find a dose. And that was looking at patients that had BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations and any kind of cancer showing uh, some benefit. Since then, so that's, you know, nine plus years ago, uh, Olaparibs has uh, earned or garnered three uh, approvals. So it's got the same breast cancer approval, so germline uh, deleterious BRCA mutations, um, after chemo, uh, that's the same uh, indication that talazoparib, uh has that we discussed uh, on last week's podcast. And then for ovarian cancer, it was originally improved for um, patients with deleterious BRCA mutations in the fourth line setting after three lines of chemo, uh, and then also approved uh, as maintenance for ovarian primary peritoneal carcinoma and then fallopian tube cancer, which I kind of lump all those and just called ovarian was recruited for mainstream in the recurrent setting. So uh, just kind of real quick the way that most ovarian cancer, uh, ovarian cancers 
PPC, primary peritoneal car carcinoma, or fallopian tube, the way most of these patients uh, are treated, they present with advanced disease, usually stage three or stage four, because the symptoms of ovarian cancer are bloating and changes in bowel habits and loss of appetite, very non-specific things. Um, so, so the disease kind of goes on, and then once it ruptures in the ovary, uh, it can spread anywhere in the perineal cavity. So it's often advanced at diagnosis, and the uh, initial treatment is uh, a very aggressive surgery, debulking surgery, that should always be done by a gynecologic oncologic surgeon, um, uh, where they go in and remove as much tumor as they can possibly find, and then you follow that with chemo. Uh, historically, that's been IV chemo with carboplatin and paclitaxel, although IV I'm sorry, inter, although intraperitoneal chemo with cisplatin and paclitaxel has shown an overall survival benefit, but is not, you know, caught on widespread in the community because of some logistic concerns of, of having a, a peritoneal catheter and of that clotting off, and it is more toxic. Um, so, uh, you know, you get chemo after the debulking surgery, IV or IP. Sometimes that IV chemo will include bevacizumab, uh, which has got some PFS data. Um, but again, you know, basically surgery, then chemo. And then these patients usually will do pretty well for many months to, to even a couple of years, and then the disease comes back. At that point, if it's more than six months after chemo, you can go back to a platinum paclitaxel regimen. Um, and that is the approval Olaparib has, is in the recurrent setting after the disease has come back as maintenance. Well, the study published on October 21st in the New England Journal of Medicine was looking at elaborate maintenance in the first-line setting after their initial chemo in patients who had germline um, BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations. And this is the SOLO1 study. It's an industry-sponsored study. Um, uh, all these patients had, there were about 400 patients, 391. They all had germline BRCA mutations except for two that had somatic mutations. And then they were randomized after chemo. Um, and the chemo was carbopaclitaxel in almost all cases, uh, maybe 20% received cisplatin in place of carboplatin. Uh, they randomized two to one to olaparib or placebo. Uh, the primary endpoint was three-year, well, it was progression-free survival, and the three-year progression-free survival free period um, was 69% in the olaparib group, so three years later, the olaparib group, 69% of them were still alive without disease progression or recurrence. Uh, progression, and then the number was half in the placebo group, 35%. Uh, and that's a, the, the progression-free survival gives you a hazard ratio of 0 0.28 with a fairly tight confidence interval of 0.2 to 0.39. And the overall survival data is, is immature. Only about 21% of the estimated of the deaths have occurred yet. Um, and in the, the Olaparib group, of course, you saw more toxicity than placebo, mostly anemia and nausea and vomiting. So uh, this is a positive study, uh, and I, I think it's worth asking anytime you see something like this, is progression-free survival or overall survival um, the better endpoint in ovarian cancer, and what is the value of that? And, and you can show overall survival in ovarian cancer, um, but I think progression-free survival is a valuable endpoint in ovarian cancer because it is usually a slow-growing disease in these women, and you can see you know, a doubling of three-year progression-free survival. So would you rather take the drug that in three years gives you a, a two-thirds chance of being alive and without disease, or you know, one-third? Uh, I think there's definitely the patient benefit there from an efficacy standpoint, whether or not you have patient-reported outcomes and quality of life that support that as well. We would need uh, those follow-up studies. Uh, so anyway, a lap rib, yeah, 
Yeah, and again, this is just in the, the, the mutated uh, BRCA1, BRCA2 population, which is not going to be um, you know, generalizable to all patients with ovarian cancer. Uh, moving on, in that same issue on October 21st, last week, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, another industry-sponsored study of atezolizumab plus nabpaclitaxel, or Braxane, in triple-negative metastatic breast cancer. This is 900 patients, randomized one-to-one, to either atezolizumab plus a Braxane or nabpaclitaxel alone. And, you know, half of these patients had had prior taxane treatment in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting prior to becoming metastatic. Um, uh, a little odd, uh, I think. I think it is not a little. It is just odd that nabpaclitaxel is the comparator group here. Um, you know, no, no platinum-based regimen. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Carboplatin docetaxel would probably be what uh, you know you you might see in the community, um, and uh, they they had some you know some funny dual endpoints here, uh, but they did show an improvement in median progression free survival progression free survival from 5.5 months to 7.2. Uh, they also looked at that in a PDL1 positive population, and the numbers are basically the same: 7.5 versus five months. Both of those statistically significant, but no overall survival difference was found. Um, and uh, they they report the absolute numbers of overall survival for the PDL1 positive group, and numerically they look good. But uh, because they 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 used up all their alpha in, in doing all these tests. They were not able to conduct a formal statistical analysis on overall survival in PD-1, PD-L1. Uh, so I think it's also worth asking, what's the value of progression-free survival versus overall survival as an endpoint in metastatic breast cancer? And you know, you're talking about, in the prior study I mentioned, Olaparib in ovarian cancer, you know, three-year three-year uh, progression-free survival rates of 69%, which means your median PFS of the Olapra group is well above three years. And here with a Tizolab Abraxin, you're talking five versus seven months. So, you know, certainly if there's a big difference in how the drug works uh, in terms of survival, which should be their, our gold standard, you would see it here. So the fact that this Atizolizumab Abraxin study doesn't show an overall survival, survival benefit and a fairly small PFS benefit um, you really wish you had overall survival as your only primary endpoint here. That's probably all that matters. So don't think you're going to see a lot of atizolizumab and nab uh, paclitaxel for triple negative patients just yet until we see uh, better evidence. Uh, speaking of hoping for better evidence, in that same issue, October 20th, uh, we have the full survival analysis of Paloma 3. So this is um, metastatic uh, or advanced breast cancer, second line treatment with either palbociclib and fulvestrin or just fulvestrin. So these are women that would have, uh, you know, hormone positive, uh, HER2 negative, who had progressed on endocrine treatment. And, you know, pretty pretty big PFS benefits. This is just the update of the overall survival. We don't see an overall survival benefit. Um, so, same question. PFS versus OS in uh, metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Um, well, this is a disease that's probably more like ovarian cancer than it is triple negative breast cancer. Uh, so even though we have two breast cancer studies here, one where I say overall survival is a better endpoint, uh, I think PFS is a fair endpoint for a hormone receptor positive breast cancer study, um, just like in, in ovarian cancer. Uh, so we don't see an overall survival benefit with Paloma 3. 
which is somewhat out of date because now the cyclin D kinase inhibitors have moved up to the first line setting for hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and that study for palpocyclin is Paloma 2. So we're kind of, you know, anxiously awaiting those, redult, those results. And uh, if I were a betting man, I probably would bet that Paloma 2 would show an overall survival benefit for palbo in the first slide setting. Just you know, the PFS benefit is, is fairly uh, significant. So I, I would expect that you would see an overall survival benefit, but haven't seen it yet. Uh, and yet we use it first line in lots and lots of women. Um, now, I know earlier I, I said that it's not every day a phase one study is published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but yesterday there was a, a fairly interesting phase one study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, and this is CD47 blockade by Hue5F9G4 plus rituximab in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is a phase 1b study. Um, I know what you're thinking. John, why are you talking about this? This is, you know, probably years uh, from market, if it gets there. Well, you know, why, do you, why did I go into oncology? A question I get a lot. I, because the drugs are pretty cool, and this is just cool. So let me explain this. CD47, CD47 um, is a, quote, do not eat me marker. Uh, and I say quotes because that's what they wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is one of the best sentences I've read in that journal. So CD47 is a do not eat me marker. So if you, if a cell expresses CD4 to set, CD47, then phagocytes like macrophages are not going to eat it. Uh, and CD4 to 7 is overexpressed by cancer cells, including non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, and not you, you to not be eaten by a phagocyte like a macrophage, you have to not express CD4 to 7, but you also have to express an eat me marker. So these eat me signals are expressed on cancer cells and very old red blood cells. So keep that in mind. Uh, so the idea here is that the antibody, which they abbreviate uh, 5F9, binds to CD47. That prevents that do not eat me signal from reaching the macrophage. And then rituximab can bind to CD20 on the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cells and then induce, you know, um, phagocyte-dependent cytotoxicity. Um, so it's a, a little bit of a way of thinking of maybe overcoming, overcoming resistance. So this is really an immune checkpoint inhibitor, and, and immune system evasion is one of the, the hallmarks of cancer. So this is a phase 1B study, small, 22 patients, 15 with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, 7 with follicular lymphoma. Median age was about 60 years. Median number of prior treatments was 4. 95% uh, were refractory to rituximab, and 18% had had a prior autologous stem cell transplant. Uh, so it was a phase one study, so they start, you know, low dose, move up. So uh, 10, 20, and 30 microgram per kilogram doses were studied with the 30 microgram per kilogram dose uh, being determined to be the maximum tolerated dose, the max that they studied anyway. Um, and that'll be the dose used in phase two studies. Uh, the rituximab was given weekly for the first month and then monthly to complete five months of rituximab. One thing uh, that's interesting, I mentioned here, I think it's all interesting, but um, they did a priming dose of 5F9, a one milligram per kilogram priming dose. And that's because uh, they knew, they, they expected this drug to cause some hemolytic anemia um, because you're blocking that do not eat me signal on old red blood cells. And if you block that, then you're gonna have some hemolytic anemia as those old red blood cells uh, are, uh, are eaten up. So they did a, a miniature dose, it's one mg per kg initially, 
And you see these patients had a hemoglobin of about 13. There's a really nice figure of this. Uh, and that drops to about 10 two weeks later. And then the hemoglobin returns back to normal on day 50 while they're getting the full dose um, of the antibody. So doing that many dose causes a, basically a very mild hemolytic, hemolytic anemia on average that then allows uh, full treatment uh, with the antibody later on because you've removed all the CD47 expressing red blood cells with that small dose uh, early on. Um, and of course it works. Uh, it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and, and if it didn't work it would not have been published uh, in such a prestigious journal and that's publication bias. Uh, so if we look at you know overall, you had an overall response rate of 50%, uh, 40% in diffuse large B cell lymphoma, 71% in follicular, uh, a complete response rate of 36% overall, 33% uh, with diffuse large B cell lymphoma had a complete response, and 43%, uh, so I, I guess that's three of seven in follicular lymphoma had a complete response. So you know most of these patients had prior treatment. So imagine a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patient. Take, take a diffuse large B cell. They had RCHOP. Then they had rice or our epoch or something, and their cancer still, their lymphoma still progresses, and you're just going to give them weekly rituximab, just single agent rituximab. You're, it's not going to work. So certainly this is this shows disease activity. Now, what is the duration of that activity? Uh, how does that compare to patients who maybe could go on to get a transplant, or is this going to be a bridge to transplant? All these are questions that will need to be asked moving forward. Um, the dose-limiting toxicities that were seen, uh, there was one grade four neutropenia that was treated with GCSF, and then a grade four uh, or a grade three episode of ITP, uh, immune-mediated thrombocytic uh, thrombocytopenia purpura, uh, which is notable since that's an autoimmune uh, disease uh, for the most part, and this is a, an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So will we see more of that as this is rolled out to a larger patient population? So certainly something to watch. By no means is this drug ready for the clinic, but it just seems cool. And then, you know, checkpoint inhibitors are uh, the present and likely the future of oncology care. Uh, so those are the updates that I have. Um, but today's November 1st, and this is the one-year anniversary of Oncofarm. And if you ask me a year ago, what is this podcast going to be? Uh, I would say, well, you know, we're talking about new drugs. We're going to talk about important updates that happen in oncology. And we're going to go back and we're going to talk about some bread and butter stuff that, that maybe some people forget from, from school or maybe they didn't get. You know, folks who, who didn't do a, a specialty residency in oncology but have found themselves working there. Or maybe folks who are completing a PGY2. That's kind of what I said I, I was going to target. And I think that we've mostly mostly done that. We've mixed just some, some high-level current updates and then some bread and butter stuff in the, the foundation. So... So moving forward, we're going to keep keep doing that. Um, you know, in a year, uh, we've done 48 episodes at about 20 minutes an episode. That's about 16 hours worth of content. I think well, that's like a one credit hour class. Uh, there have been over 6,400 um, plays or downloads in over 50 countries. So, um, and that's all without any commercial support or ads. Well, if somebody wants to give me money to do an ad, and you know, you're not a horrible company, um, maybe, maybe. Um, so uh, thank you to uh, to my employer, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, for helping out with the hosting fees, uh, so we can offer this. Um, and, and thank you, thank you, thank you to the listeners uh, for getting us to this year, uh, through this year. Uh, please go find us on the iTunes Store. Give us a five star rating, review us, tell us what you'd like and what you'd like to hear more of. Um, and, and hopefully sometime in the future, I'll be able to, to develop a website where we can 
uh, host these in, um, in not just chronological order, or not in chronolo chronological order, but uh, in more of um, in an order that makes sense. So kind of have you know the, the history of breast cancer treatment stacked in order so you kind of go through them one by one if somebody wanted to refresh on how uh, we got to where we are now in treating breast cancer or colon cancer. If you want to just to listen to the, the drug-specific ones, whether it's paclitaxel or methotrexate, those would be in a different section. So, uh, you know, um, don't hold your breath on that because they're only 24 hours in a day. But uh, in the future, that is something that I would like to, to do. In the meantime, we're just going to talk about more drugs in our foundation series, um, more history in our landmark series, and more updates like we did today. So thank you for listening, and I hope to see you all a little further down the road.